David. Hi. Um, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sick, it's good to be on a call with you. Yeah, welcome to my podcast. I've uh, I started podcasting a few years ago and uh, um, just kind of just testing it out. And I have about forty percent of my audience is in the U.S. and the rest is in the re- uh, different parts of the world. And so I uh, I imagine they all speak English. Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, because you don't get feedback from them. But uh, I thought it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit of, uh, about yourself and kind of the things that you're, you've been doing in machine learning. Okay, sure. Um, do, you, do you have any specific topics you'd like me to hit or anything um, in well, particular? I was interested. Uh, I saw that you just kind of looked at your career path, and it was pretty intriguing uh, from going from your college into a developer role, and then uh, you're, right now you're CEO of a company. And, uh, yeah, CTO. Or C- what was that again? A CTO. Oh, CTO, sorry. And I was just wondering if you wanted to talk of, about kind of what you're, you're doing with technology. Sure, sure. Um, so... I guess the the place to start would be with my college. Uh, I went to BYU, um, the the one down in Provo, so not not the one up in Rexburg in Idaho. But I started off majoring in linguistics, and I guess I shouldn't say started off. I, I ended up graduating in linguistics, but basically, within my first year, I got introduced to the idea of localization and the idea of machine translation. And both of those ideas hit me pretty strongly because, you know, I I speak several languages and I've lived in several different countries. And so I feel pretty strongly about trying to make things available to different people. And, um, so that, that led me to take, you know, I, I did a triple minor. I minored in localization, I minored in Russian, and I minored in computer science. I, I took a whole bunch of computer science classes to, you know, get familiar with data structures and algorithms and um, specifically machine learning and deep learning. BYU has a, a really fantastic professor. Well, there, there are a lot of fantastic professors, but specifically Dr. Wingate, he's very well qualified and um he teaches some of the machine learning and deep learning classes at byu i got to take some of his classes and he he introduced me to a lot um i also got to work as a an nlp research scientist byu's library the harold b lee library and um while i was doing that i i got to work on like computer vision tasks you know we were able to um it's hard to explain this to non-developers but basically we were able to compress a computer vision algorithm enough to be able to fit it in teeny little security cameras cool to do some entity recognition to track different people through the library to see you know what was the average student using the library for and that expanded that expanded into some NLP projects involving like 
determining how satisfied a customer, a given customer was based on their interaction in the chat. And, you know, keeping track of employees, specific employees, like uh, not, not keeping track like Big Brother style, but keeping track like making sure that they're being appropriate in their interactions with customers and gauging their answers to determine whether they would be more efficient than a chatbot, at least at, at giving correct answers. That was a really interesting project. Um, it was hard working at the library mainly because uh, I was constantly having to justify my existence. Oh. Like the, my manager was really supportive, but his, his boss and his boss and her boss, you know, they, they didn't know as much about what I was doing or why I was doing it. And so I was constantly having to build little toy models and expounding on them to, to kind of basically get them to understand that what I was doing was worth it. That like, they weren't just paying me in like a black hole vacuum. Huh. You know what I mean? One of those tools yeah. I made, I'm still really proud of it. I'll send it to you in the LinkedIn chat, but it's a uh, quick sentiment.herokuapp.com. It'll take a sec to start up because it's in the free tier of Heroku, but um, this was something that I, that I did to explain sentiment analysis to one of my advisors because that chat system is pretty extensive. We analyze the sentiment first and then from that sentiment we are able to gauge using another machine learning model how satisfied the customer is and then from those two points and from the text in the interaction we're able to gauge a whole bunch of other information like about who the customer could be um, what they were asking about whether they actually got an answer whether that wow. answer was correct you know it's it was pretty extensive. It took about nine months of work for me and my team to to really get going. Well, that sounds like a uh, real interesting uh, problem to have solved. I, I did some sentiment analysis. By the way, this audience is really technical, so I hit them with <laughs> low-level stuff every time I'm on here. So don't oh, feel, free to, feel free to talk technical. You know, that's, that's uh, uh, nerd, nerd haven. But, uh, okay, great. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, so they're very technical. Fantastic. That um that algorithm we used for the cameras was Yolo V3. Yolo V4 hadn't come out yet, but it's just really cool stuff. You only look once is what Yolo stands for. So not live once. It's a computer vision thing. And um, basically, what we did is. I don't remember what this is called, actually. I haven't thought about it in a while, but uh, we prep-ended on the front of our inputs, a base, basically a matrix that matched our padding and our, and our step layers. I, at least it matched it in dimensions. One matrix was only zeros and one matrix was only ones. And we found that this increased our accuracy a lot, at least for the bounding boxes that we were trying to draw around the people and also for retention across images, because obviously this is a, this is a camera, you know, it's a live feed. 
And so being able to recognize that something is the same entity between frames of that camera was absolutely paramount. And so um, I don't remember what that algorithm is called. I may have to look it up and send it to you afterwards, but it was, it was pretty cool. It was very effective for the camera for, um, for the NLP task. We had to use kind of a, if you, if your audience and you are familiar with word embeddings and how they're created, I, I'm sure they're familiar at least with the term word embeddings. Sure. We had, we had to come up with a way to utilize pre-trained word embeddings, but also, you know, do a bit more than just fine tuning on our data set. We had to actually add in um, I think the best way to describe it is our our data set that we were using, which was about 10 years of chat interactions, ended up being more like almost the exact same size as the pre-trained embeddings we were using. We were using um, Distilbert, which is a pre-trained model from Hugging Face. They're really, really, really great company for NLP. I'm super, I'm glad that they're around and that they exist. But um, yeah, it's a smaller version of BERT that doesn't really compromise its accuracy at all. So we were using those, those pre-trained embeddings and we, we ended up just combining them with our own embeddings. And we used a continuous bag of words model to initially create those embeddings. And then we were able to train them on our data set for a really long time, which was really helpful. Uh, what, was we the, up, what, was, what was the outcome of the uh, embeddings? Were they, did they, uh, how well did they perform, would, would you say, in terms of? what you were trying to accomplish. So we actually, we did a couple of confusion matrices to evaluate, evaluate these every single time we ran them. Mm. And by the end of it, we ended up getting about a 98% accuracy on the embeddings. Wow. Which, you know, it's not state of the art, but it's fantastic. It was, it was really useful for our purposes. And then underneath that, using the Distilbert architecture to, to train the model, this was something that was really difficult for me to engineer because I was, you know, this is like more than a year ago. I, I was not quite as experienced in the math side of things coming from the linguistic background. And so the idea that you would have, um, the idea that you would have the inputs run through the model and then be able to actually have multiple outputs was just not going into my head. I, I was having trouble understanding that matrix multiplication can happen more than once at that ending layer. So then you can have multiple outputs going out to multiple different soft maxes in order to get different um, intuitions and different results using the exact really same cool. model. Yeah, that's kind of like with self-driving cars because they've got to do multiple outputs also. Right. And that's something that I had to do a lot of research on because going into it, I just didn't understand it. And then even after somebody told me it was possible, I didn't have the first clue of like where to start or what to do for that. But that's that's what ended up happening so that we could get 
I think it was 21 initial results. I'll have to, um, the paper, the paper and the publication come out next month in November. I'll, I'll have to go through them again so that I, I can make sure that I understand everything that I did. Um, well, it's, it's really neat. The, uh, the multi-classifications I think is the future, you know, because you have everything is now getting these uh, complex networks um, that require not just a single, you know, like a binary classification, but they have to, they have to be categorical. And then you, you know, though uh, you could feed those into different other networks, you know, depending on what category fires. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was, it was such a cool project to work on. And I really attribute a lot of my success after college to the fact that I stuck through that because it was really tedious. You know, I would say probably seven out of those nine months was just data wrangling. It was, it was just cleaning the data set and making sure that things were in the proper format and making sure that we were splitting things up correctly so that, you know, we want to give the, the BERT model would only take text. And so we didn't want to give it the dates. We wanted to give the dates and the times to another model to do, to do different inference there. Like how many people were aware of the library's hours, you know, how many people were, connecting when the library wasn't even open and expecting some sort of response. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something that was able to come really in handy for me when I was interviewing at TransEnergy. Um, they took me in for the CTO position, not because I was really, really experienced, but because um, they saw that I had a drive to research things when I didn't understand them, that I didn't just sit idly. And we've been working on building custom machine translation solutions and mm. business management solutions. Those, those have been a lot more interesting than my previous stuff, but it's, it's a little bit different considering, you know, I'm not quite as hands-on as I was. Have you, know you thought I mean? about? Have you thought about uh, uh, creating like a, a middle layer language? Uh, so, like, as it's doing the word bagging, as it's identifying different categories, that it can self-generate code to create actions. Have you ever thought about that? That's something I've been thinking about. Is this that? you use the AI as a sensory device um, and then it, as it identifies things or, or identifies behaviors or identifies entities, then in order to do actions, it self-generates its own code uh, based on patterns that it already knows in its repository to generate a specific action. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I haven't. That that sounds really complex. Like a interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like the way it's kind of like the way we do it. Uh, when we want to take an action, we have some general framework. We use like a template, um, 
but then we take inputs and we try to mold our actions to those inputs. So like if you know if you never taken out the trash, for example, there might be certain steps, you know, walk out your front door, open the door, take a left, uh, open the gate. You know, these are particular functions uh, which could be described maybe as API calls or RESTful calls, you know, to get information and then based on that information, uh, build your logic uh, to achieve a goal. Uh, and then, where, so you're, you're talking about using the AI to recognize what tasks are required for, like, yeah, to, see, to complete something and then, then stringing them in the right order? Yeah, because see, you've done the first part, which is uh, classification, which is really great. But the next level would be then uh, based on the classification for the machine to take some action. Uh, so in the case like with the library, it might be to send over to their device a list of uh, things that might be interesting to them. Like they're, let's say they're looking at walking through the library looking for at certain scientific publications and you know in that section of the library maybe it's harvard law review mm -hmm. so uh at that point maybe on their device they get uh, a list of other resources that might help them like uh, the microfix section or uh maybe some special collections things sure. that might be helpful based on what you're kind of seeing as their pattern and their sentiment uh-huh that's really interesting. We're we're trying to deal with something similar. I'm not going to say it's the same, but something similar right now with our many-to-many -many translation stuff. Um, yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking of because when you think of coding, it's or, or programming, it's really a form of coding, encoding. Yeah, and so you can compress a lot of your languages like for loops, iterators, stuff, and as an encoded structure. And, and so uh, it kind of goes into this uh, Lisp-like language where you could have your data and your rules uh, together and it can parse it. And Python's really good at that because it can, uh, you can take and, and generate code and it can interpret that code. Sure. Um, so then you just kind of build a real run, real time compiler like almost like c sharp does where it's at, at real time evaluating these functions these uh, lambda functions and things mm -hmm. like that um but having that the ai actually having it do some action that's the thing that i think is going to be exciting is where ai not just identifies things and patterns but um it could actually um make decisions Sure. So based on, you know, these following inputs, it makes a couple of decisions. And then the next thing would be to have it take an action. So it has to have some capability to do particular sequences. And, and that would be in the form of some meta uh, encoding that the machine could, could um, evaluate. All right. And that's, that's what would make it especially hard to develop because you're not talking about named entity recognition. You're talking about implied entity recognition. You know, you're because that task that ultimately you're trying to get the machine to perform based on those stats isn't something that has been expl explicitly named from the data. 
So yeah, that's right. And so it has to be inferred, and then just like a, a compiler, uh, it it uh, would have to take the lambda functions and form them, and then be able to evaluate them. You might so, be able to do something pretty cool with like a text summarizer if you train it on the correct data. So it's not it's not actually summarizing. It's well, it, it is still summarizing, but it's not summarizing based on the words that are explicitly stated in the text. It's summarizing based on, you know, inferred meaning of those words. And then um, I've seen some stuff like this with GPT-3. I haven't had the opportunity to test any of it myself, so I don't know how well it actually works. But a lot of people are buzzing right now about GPT-3's ability to generate code based on a description. Yeah. So basically has, you would summarize it into a description of what you want it to do and then some yeah, this, gigantic this would model. Kind of work like the reverse of GPT-3, you, you give it as a kind of a summarized um, high level and then because it's, you know, it's gaining comprehension maybe from other programming uh, code base that it's learning from, sure. uh, it, it then basically write its own code almost like gpt3 it, it comprehends it goes in the reverse it takes the detail and then gives you the kind of the summary human comprehension uh piece you know like so it reads a book and yeah. uh that it, it summarizes and tells you you know maybe key key ideas in the book and then uh but it's they i guess the because it's got so many parameters and the data is so large they're saying that it has about the equivalent of a human comprehension. So as you go kind of in reverse, if you said, well, okay, if I just said, uh, build me uh, an API that will interface with a, you know, a known data set and um, tell me about, you know, all the uh, movies, you know, maybe for 2020. So right now you'd have to go build your RESTful call and you would have to put your parameters in your query string and you'd have to authenticate. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of steps for even for a developer to do all that. It's, but in the end you get a RESTful get call and you get your data back. Then you have to uh, put it into a class and then you have to, you know, make sure all the data binds correctly. So there's a lot of manual work to do simple tasks. If the machine could do a lot more of that mapping and translation for you, it would speed things up. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think it's possible, you know. I, I don't know. I've, I've never attempted anything even close to that, but it sounds like it could be doable. I feel like there are probably some pretty gigantic problems right in the beginning of just like, where would you get your data set for that? You know, because you yeah. can try unsupervised learning. I mean, unsupervised learning would be fantastic for the language model itself. In fact, I think that's the only meaningful way to build a language model like that. But I think for the actual data set, you'd have to figure out how to get it to be self-supervised. You know, where similar, similarly to the, oh, shoot, similarly to that, bag of words model that we made for the language and for the word embeddings where it yeah. 
it masks the input and then attempts to guess what that input's going to be. And then it's able to just go word by word. And if it gets the word wrong, you know, you backprop and update the parameters. If it gets it right, then you give it a little check. But you just you just keep going. You use the data as the labels. So it, it becomes more self-supervised. That I think that that's the way that you would want to go with the text summary that I was talking about to be able to create those meaningful descriptions to feed into a larger language model that would generate the code. I don't yeah, know that because, because I don't know that you you'd would... be able to do that with less than like I don't know a trillion parameters that like that model would yeah. have to be so massive. Well, actually, I was thinking of a more simple approach because it, it uh, so what you'd have is some discrete RESTful APIs, and then you have your bag of words uh, that have are creating your entities, and then you're matching. If you found if you found that there was some matches between uh, the bag of words and your entities, which were your RESTful calls, then you can see if you uh, if you could apply particular actions. So you'd have a library that says, here are the particular actions I can use do with this uh, RESTful call. And then you'd have developers that build RESTful calls that are accessing uh, other data sets on the web. Right. So you're, And so maybe it, it says uh, the person's reading through a journal and he wants to, uh, he wants to uh, get some, um, idea how to make a purchase on uh, uh, a particular scientific document he's reading about. Uh, maybe there's a RESTful call that goes out and uh, it deals with publications. So it, it then would query that database and pull back information. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe another one would say, go through an e-commerce site and actually help the person. It would build a UI and, and then would uh, then go through the process of doing the authentication and e-commerce transaction. All those things would used to be, you know, you'd spend months with developers building these things. But now that machines can start understanding some of this, maybe they can do a lot of that automatically, you know, with obviously a development team that's setting up the framework. So then you use your entity you use your uh, identification as the front part to sense what possible actions that the back end could do for the person, sure. including, you know, dynamically building the UIs, uh, dynamically, you know, creating the actions and stuff. And it, since it's all machine generated and, and known and provable, it's very deterministic. So it's, it's kind of interesting idea that like you, I, I like where your your original research where the machine was watching and observing and that it was creating a, a dialogue and that it was summarizing that dialogue into a conversation that you could then, you know, uh, use to explain people's behavior. So right. That, that would be one of the, really helpful for a lot of companies. One of the coolest things about that project that, um, I'm trying to decide whether I even want to open source it because it's cool, but I could see this being used in a really nasty way. Uh, we, 
we are initially started trying to determine how satisfied someone was based on a super like a live supervised algorithm so what would happen is the machine learning model would be watching during a live chat it would be taking the inputs live and then um at the end of the conversation after after they've exited the model would prompt the customer to rate their experience from one to five stars. And um, so we initially tried to gather data that way. And then we found out that people would consistently, our machine, our model would determine that they were unsatisfied with the interaction, but they would still give five stars. And we think like, we don't have a lot to confirm this, but we think that a lot of it had to do with whether or not people wanted to get the specific employee that they were talking to in trouble. Like if they still had a good interaction with the employee, even though they weren't satisfied with the answer, they like they were not satisfied with the service, just having a good interaction with the employee ended up with a five-star rating on that interaction. And so we pivoted away from trying to gather any actual data from the customers and instead tried to predict. This is one of those factors that we were attempting to predict to see how accurate the model would actually be. And one of the determiners of our, specifically our precision within, within our accuracy, like how many non-false positives are we giving? How many true positives are we giving? Was predicting what will people like what rating on that scale of one to five will people give hmm. it was it was pretty cool it was because what, we, what did you what did you discover uh we determined that people really are terrible at self-evaluating how satisfied yeah. they are <laughs> right yeah um basically would what would happen that. is we would have these extremely negative interactions that just because of a couple of different phrases that the employees would give, like, you know, I'm very sorry, but, you know, when, whenever the employees would hedge bad news, we would end up getting these five-star interactions, even though the person would say, they would sometimes even be rude in the chat. You know, they'd say that, like, this is extremely unprofessional and I can't believe that this the library isn't open on Saturdays, you know, like some something like that where they're very clearly unsatisfied, they would end up still giving it a five-star review. Again, we think it's yeah. based on the fact that they didn't want to get the employee they were talking to in trouble. Yeah. Interesting. I, and it, um, it almost makes you wonder if you did voice recognition, you know, if, they, if you had voice to text or if you had some sort of facial recognition and you could get a, a facial gesture that might indicate you know a response pattern oh absolutely like, yeah are That's... they angry are they are they uh indifferent you know how many times they are their eyes moving left to right or you know uh I, like cars that are watching for sleepy drivers you know they're watching different angles different frequencies and then they're judging, you know, they're judging uh, the person's emotional state based on 
frequency. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I talked, I did a podcast with Ben I, uh, and uh, he's, a, he's a podcaster out there and he was telling um, that they had a company where they were watching uh, facial recognition for cheating. I guess there's a, there's definitely certain uh, body signal signs that indicate, you know, cheating. And so they would watch for that and they built software that detected that at real time. So you could like take your real time feeds and if you could identify to a particular individual that was uh, linked to that uh, rating, that'd be kind of the key is how somewhat way to link the rating to the individual. Uh, you could maybe see uh, from the chats whether or not that individual's how they're feeling, you know? Yeah. That's really that, interesting. I wonder how colleges would feel about that software. Yeah, you know, it's it's like, uh, it's one of those things, though, when you get the camera, everyone's really nervous, you know? Uh -huh. um, and it, But at the same time, um, the, they're already being analyzed and people are being analyzed in terms of movement through the library you know, if you're identifying uh, uh, particular patterns of migration, migration patterns as they're moving through the library, uh, whether they're getting, you know, particular information that they're looking for, uh, you know, what are their signs? One of the things that this could be really useful for is when people are trying to find information, you know, having a handheld device that's interacting with them. I wish that we had gotten that deep with the computer vision project, honestly, because we were like, people talked about that, but as complicated as the algorithm ever got was determining whether somebody was number one, going to the library to study, which that was a pretty easy one. It's just, did they sit down anywhere versus were they just going through the library to like avoid rain or just because it was faster or something. We determined that the majority of people were going through the library just to walk through it. Like they weren't they weren't doing anything in the library. They were just walking through it. That's as complicated as that algorithm ever got. Wow. I don't I don't know if they would develop it further. I remember my boss being pretty uh, pretty nervous about you know detecting yeah. things that we weren't trying to detect based on monitoring people through the cameras. Cause again, that, that's why I said at the beginning, it wasn't a big brother well, application. It would <laughs> but, have been nice. It could have been nice to detect whether someone was stealing uh, a book, you know, obviously it's uh, you have coding for exit out, but if they had a way of removing the, the coding or magnetic strip, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, theft is a big thing, you know, where, uh, the machine can detect, you know, what they're doing, the actions that they're taking, like you, you're describing, like creating a conversation. And if there was a conversation that the uh, natural language processor says, hey, that's that is suspectable behavior, then maybe it can set an alert, you know, that sure. this person's damaging, you know, books or leaving books on the floor, you know, whatever behavior that uh, it can identify. I like that you said that it's um that it would send an alert to someone. <laughs> I 
I'm sure that you've talked about AI ethics on this podcast before. It'd be hard to avoid that subject, but that's that's a really hot thing right now because just I don't know determining the recall on a system like that, like how many true negatives are you actually going to get versus the the false positive or the false negatives. It um, creates this really nasty situation where the machine might detect that somebody is stealing something but they weren't actually stealing something, but that could have really real world consequences for them based on a mistake that a machine made. And actually this is something that I've been working on right now is uh, it's, I guess it's not something I'm working on. It's something that uh, a project that I'm working on has been touching against. The fact that people tend to believe machines more than other people and the fact that people tend to be more honest with machines than they are with other people it's really interesting stuff but it could like i said you you said that really well that the machine would send an alert to somebody it wouldn't it would not like flag them as a person who's thieving it would not determine that for them it would say hey this needs more investigation or something like that you know, you know, but eventually, um, you know, I was talking to a lawyer about um, how, you know, AI could be actually used to uh, do sentencing or judgments or interpret the law. You know, you have an adversarial system where you have two two groups. One is uh, one is your plaintiff, one's your defendant, and uh, and then you you make your present your arguments. And then, you know, a jury or, or a judge makes a, a decision. It's interesting because um, it's expensive, you know, in order mm-hmm. to get that level of representation in a legal battlefield, uh, you have to put out a lot of money. And then they, there's a lot of research that's done. If you have an AI lawyer um, who can, you know, for a reasonable fee, uh, produce a case defense that's as good as a $500 an hour lawyer. Uh, I think more people will want kind of that automation to help them. And I know there's companies that are starting to do that for the common person where they're uh, providing some legal guidance through automation. And then they're creating the forms and they're creating the verbiage to say when they go into court so that they have a chance, you know, they yeah. don't just walk in there and, and lose. Yeah. But, uh, but I do think the automation is going to play more of a, a decision-making in the future. Right now, like you say, we're deferring to human judgment because we, you know, we don't want to make a machine decide, you know, our fate. But at the same time, if you started looking at statistically, what if machines were statistically more fair and less people who are innocent went to jail, uh, would then you might say I I would rather have a machine make that decision than a than a jury or right or maybe a, and a, it's hard to determine who to trust here you know because this is reminding me of the the first time that I was ever exposed to AI ethics was actually in a one of Dr Wingate's deep learning classes which was really cool it's you know that's deep learning classes are a high level thing normally undergrads don't get to participate in a lot of that stuff and um our class actually worked with the bioinformatics section of the for uh, of the school 
and we cooperated with a hospital in the area to uh, basically build a data set and then create a pretty complex unit that was able to detect cancer hmm. um, from x-rays. And that was, it was really, really cool to be a part of it. But our, and I remember our initial excitement, like the first time we ran the model, the very first time after we'd gotten all of our data and everything, and, and we had come up, like we didn't, we didn't create the unit structure, but we we came up with our, our unit architecture and got it working. The first time we ran the model, we had 98% accuracy. And we were like, wow, you know, this is this is revolutionary. This is amazing. Until we realized that 98% accuracy meant that it had learned to, to say no cancer every single time. Because only two percent of the data data set actually tested positive, and so like our model just learned to say no one has cancer. But we had all been really excited about it right in the beginning, before somebody realized that that's what was going on. Just because we we had a really high number, you know, it, it goes back to that recall situation of how many false negatives are you actually going to get, right? And that's, that's kind of the deciding factor as to whether or not you'd want that machine deciding your fate. I mean, whether it's a cancerous situation or in a courtroom, you know, I, I think that I would, and there's going to be, and there's going to be some statistic where it's going to have error because it is running it. There's an element of randomness to it uh, where it's going to be wrong. You're going to get those, uh, you're going to get those false positives. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to talk about how much closer you can get to a hundred, a hundred percent accuracy from that 98%. You know, it comes down to that last 2%, how much it actually matters. And um, we were able to get it up above 90, 99%. Wow. But even with that, you know, we're still missing out on a lot of our people who actually had cancer, but the machine did said you, did no. Did you just throw more data at it? Is, was that your solution? Just no, I wish that, <laughs> we didn't have more data to give it. So that, that wasn't a possible solution for us. You know, we were already using thousands of medical records. And just yeah. the fact that we had access to that was a miracle in and of itself, you know, so right. there's there's no more data that we can throw at it without, you know, taking months of talking with more hospitals and convincing them that this is actually useful and stuff. In the end, maybe get a maybe get a different uh, um, instead of a digital model, maybe an analog model or something. I've re I've seen that there there's that new argument, you know, with the nematode uh, worm neurons versus the deep learning neurons so they uh the what i couldn't find anything on youtube or the internet on it but uh one one of the people said that um that 19 neurons outdid a million parameter deep learning network oh for the self-driving cars yeah 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 i have seen those and so that, <laughs> in that fact i think that's that that's my yeah, top LinkedIn comment. You're, you're going the wrong way, you know? Yeah. If 19 neurons can outperform a deep learning network. Maybe the deep learning network architecture itself isn't as good as it's promising to be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's my top my top LinkedIn comment, actually, on Steve Norrie. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. he, he said something about that, the, these nematode nervous system neurons using only 19 of them. And my comment was, so which of the 19 neurons are the people that won't use their blinkers and cut you off lacking? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just really happy. You know, we've finally been able to definitively determine that if you're a bad driver, it's because you have fewer than 19 neurons firing in your brain. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, just Chris, dumb, uh, huh? I think we're about uh, up for time, but uh, sure enjoyed the conversation. You wanted uh, just uh, do you, you got a website or anything that uh, I know you got you're on LinkedIn. I follow you on LinkedIn, your comments. Uh, do you want to just summarize the, or conclude? Uh, sure. Basic. So I don't I don't have myself a website. I, I would love it if people looked at my GitHub. You know, that's that's got a lot of my code on it. And I'm I'm really proud of a lot of the stuff I have, especially the NLP repository. Um, my GitHub is I'm Jones with two Z's instead of S's. It's all caps. There's a funny story behind that name, but I won't tell it here. Um, I've really appreciated talking to you also, David. I, I think that it's great to have these type of conversations, especially when so much of the world is really distrustful of the AI. There's a lot that AI can do for us. You know, there's a there's a lot that NLP can do for us. You know, I'm I'm working right now with NLP in the health industry and NLP in in the business industry, and it's really cool the sort of ramifications that it can have just on everyday life. You know, the world wouldn't exist without without AI right now. That's what powers Google. That's what powers Amazon. And it's in everything we do, and we're still kind of scared of it. Yeah, I think uh, the the future, if you're not building it, uh, you're getting left behind. So, uh, you know, you're, you're building the future, and, and good luck. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. All right, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, you too, David. Feel free to contact me anytime. Okay, thanks. See ya.